Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I emphasize community because I believe that community is the healthiest, most effective way for we humans to live. We are friendly tribal animals. We like to associate with one another. We like to do things together, cooperate, collaborate on all kinds of things, ranging from sewing circles to traveling to the moon. We like to play games together. We like to create things together. And we really love to eat together in circles. Very tribal we are. While we know that we are friendly and cooperative, we also must be aware that there is a very small percentage of us who are very different. These people are predators who would dominate us. While we believe in democracy and republic, democracy, one person, one vote, republic, everyone equal before the law, this very small group do not agree with that. These folks are what I call social Darwinists. They believe that those at the top, need to stay at the top, and all the rest of us need to be at the bottom. These are the people going back in history that were the pharaohs in Egypt. Moving forward, these were the people like Julius Caesar, who changed the Roman experiment with Republic into an empire. You could name Genghis Khan, uh, Hitler, Mussolini, uh, more modern days, maybe Putin, former President Trump would like to be that way. They're dictatorial people who would rather have subjects than citizens. It's our duty as citizens to remain very aware of these folks and to exercise our right to vote because a democracy and a republic, they are fragile experiments. They don't just last forever as I thought they would when I was a young person. They are something that we need to maintain, get out there, Stay politically aware, exercise your right to vote, and remember the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, who said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. George Greer. Dr. George Greer is a medical doctor. He's also the co-founder and president of the Hefter Research Institute. You want to go to Google and check out the Hefter Research Institute. It promotes research of the highest scientific quality with the classic hallucinogens and related compounds, sometimes called psychedelics, in order to contribute to a greater understanding of the mind leading to the improvement of the human condition and to alleviate suffering. That was their mission statement that I just read to you. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, George. Thank you. George, you've been a psychiatrist now for well over 40 years, maybe over 50 years. You're a thinking person. You're an introspective person. In addition to your family and friends, what's on your radar screen nowadays? 
Well, the most interesting and important thing I think that's happening, and this is in the in the psychedelic world, is is what is happening in in the House of Representatives right now, which has never happened before. And the House representatives, a Republican, uh, senior Republican, and Democrat, have created uh, the bipartisan Correctional, Congressional Psych- Psychedelics Advancing Therapies Caucus, or called the PATH Caucus. And the purpose of this is to uh, ultimately uh, pass legislation for a um, a carve out from the total NIH budget, National Institutes of Health budget of about forty five billion dollars a year. Just, you know, a, a tiny bit to support psychedelic research. They've only given a couple of grants uh, so far in the last 50 years. So that's very exciting to, to get Congress who can afford much more than the private funding Hefters relied on for the past 30 years. Uh, and that's, that's very exciting and that it's bipartisan. And they also want to, uh, the Veterans Affairs Department uh, to do the same, get some of their research money for, uh, you know, for veterans. So that's the most interesting, exciting thing to me. And I'm, I'm the consultant for Apollo Pact, which is the organization uh, that's organizing this and, 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 uh, and starting it, you know, for, for, for us. Uh, so this is just exciting. And, and then two congressmen have already visited on their own time in nickel uh, to visit psychedelic researchers at NYU, Johns Hopkins, and uh, and then the Bronx VA at Mount Sinai Medicine, where Rachel Yehuda is doing uh, PTSD research. She's an international PTSD researcher. So that's the most interesting and exciting thing that's happening uh, outside my family these days. That is very exciting. I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us because I've heard rumors about it. But I didn't know how accurate it was, and it's great to hear from you. Yeah. George, you did seminal research back in 19, I believe, 81 to 83 or 4 uh, on MDMA. And I read where you conducted at least 100 sessions of MDMA. That was when MDMA was still legal. Um Will you give us a summary of that research for those who uh, probably weren't even born at that time? Yes, I'd be happy to. That's really when I got my start doing something in this field. Uh, I had just finished uh, my psychiatry residency in 79, and Stan Groff introduced me to Ralph Metzner, who lived in San Francisco, where I lived at the time. And Ralph suggested I do some work with ketamine because it was legal. And a few months later, uh, which I did, I learned about MDMA, uh, from a scientific paper, and uh, and I started researching that, and I had met uh, Sasha Shulgin and Leo Zeff at a Esalen workshop with Groff in the mid-70s, and I was still a medical student. So I said, well, how, you know, how can this be done with MDMA? It's not a FDA drug like ketamine. It's just a molecule out there. So I did some legal research and found an opinion from the Attorney General of California that said, if you're a doctor, or a pharmacist, you can take anything from the environment, bark on the tree, whatever, and compound or manufacture your own supply of a drug or medicine and administer it uh, or give it to your own patients. Uh, uh, because pharmacists and physicians are covered by their licensing acts. 
and the public is protected because they can lose their license if they harm people. So I just needed peer review, informed consent, and uh, uh, and some data, you know, showing that MDMA could be helpful to people, which I had. And then so we just started uh, by word of mouth, you know, spreading the word that this was available. My wife and I was a, a psychiatric nurse with a master's degree, and we uh, we just started doing sessions. And these were people who did not suffer from any severe disabling mental illness like PTSD. We had no idea it would be helpful for PTSD just for insight therapy. So what we learned was people had very few side effects, uh, maybe a little low energy and stuff for two, three days. And, uh, and all of them, everybody, you know, achieved the goals they wanted. We did questionnaires before and after everything you could think of. Um, and the most, the newest thing we found, which was kind of a su- surprise to us, was that when couples did it together, they said their intimate communication between each other was much more direct and to the point and not burdened by their worrying about, oh, what will my partner think? You know, I'm embarrassed about this or I'm, I'm afraid they'll do this or, or I don't want to, I don't want to talk about this topic. Because MDMA, the phrase we came up with, MDMA blocks the perceived emotional threat from basically anything, perceived, you know, blocks that, that threat response. And so they said that that was true for them. And what's more, for months and up to two years to our longest follow-up, they said that communication style being more direct continued after the MDMA, you know, and just was kind of long-lasting. So that was especially uh, unusual. And because we'd never really heard of a drug that had some sort of lasting, a psychedelic drug had sort of lasting effects like that. So that was, that's, that's the brief summary of that work. And then we had to stop when it was, became a controlled drug uh, in 1985. So if I understand you correctly, George, you're saying that the medicine alone, the MDMA, had this not only positive effect while the couple were experiencing the effect, but it had an ongoing effect even without what nowadays we're calling integration sessions, that the medicine in and of itself had that effect? Is that correct? I I would not put it that way. I would say the medicine facilitated that effect because with MDMA and and all psychedelics, you know, the research that's happened since then, you know, the, the drugs themselves are not healing. They're just molecules. They're just things. And um, what's healing is the person's intent, you know, their the, the mindset, uh, their intention for the session. That's the most important thing. So these are all people who had a goal they wanted to achieve. And, um, and then we did, you know, preparation, uh, questionnaire, face-to-face interview we didn't i wouldn't say we did integration and i wouldn't say except except in the you know the latter part of the day where we did the session because they weren't seeking help for some problem they were struggling with for the most part uh but we had follow-up conversations with them and were available to them uh as needed uh so i think it was you can't really separate the drug from their mindset and intention and the setting and the therapy where we are, it's it's all one package and can't really be 
separated, at least not in any way someone's discovered at this point. I was fortunate enough to have uh, MDMA administered to me in the early 80s by my therapist, Dr. Robert Cantor, uh, down in uh, Burlingame, and uh, had a quite remarkable experience. And um, I knew other people who were taking it at the time, and couples as well. And I've gone on to take it with, with my wife, and I've interviewed many people who have taken it. One of the issues appears to be how, and I think this is true for LSD and psilocybin as well, by the way, and I'd like your opinion, which is how does one grab a hold of the benefit while the experience is going on and bring it back to daily life use? Uh, well, maybe not too hard to put in words, but not easy to actually do. <laughs> so, <laughs> The main thing is that the person is committed to uh, to doing exactly what you said, that they think about that during the drug's effect and like, okay, I really want to anchor this. I want to remember this. I want to make it a part of my life, that they reinforce that intention and idea during the drug session. And one of the, one of the things that's been discovered just in the last two or three years is that MDMA and, and psychedelics uh, facilitate the, the formation of new connections between neurons it's called neuroplasticity and they can weaken others that, that, uh, and, and that are not used and strengthen ones, strengthen ones that are used. So uh, the general belief is, which makes sense to me, is that if you reinforce a thought or behavior repeatedly, your brain learns to do that. If you do that when your neuroplasticity is, is enhanced, it's going to be even more effective. Now, we had no idea about that in the past, but uh, myself and other people said, you know, that these insights or whatever that happened stuck with them. And they, they reported, you know, they reported some change, positive changes in their lives afterwards. I don't remember the t details now other than the communication, but that, that is the way to do that to with self-discipline and focus and repetition to reinforce that idea and that emotional intention uh, as much as possible. One of the things I've thought about, and I've done a little experimenting with, is using uh, audio and video recording of the couple session so that they can keep a copy of it and then play it back during their normal daily lives as a way of reinforcing what they learn. Do you approve of that? Do you think that's a good uh, tactic? Yes. Well, we, we did that. That's something we did. I just I had forgotten about that. And we also took copious notes of everything they said and, and could share that with them as well and have it available for our analysis you know, of the, of the content. Uh, so, yes, I think that's an excellent thing. And a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people do make use of that because uh, that's a reinforcement of those same thoughts in their everyday state of mind. But but those reminders, or even hearing the music playlist, you know, can bring back some of that experience and feeling and attitude they had under the MDMA. And reading those words can do that. So that can help bring those insights and perspectives and vision into their everyday life. Some people are differentiating two types of psychedelic therapeutic experience, one being psycholytic and one being psychedelic. You're familiar with that. 
the psycholytic yes. being a lower dose, more conversational between the subject or patient and the therapist, and the other being totally introspective with a higher dose where the person uses eye shades. Would you be recommending that in the psycholytic sessions that we advise people to use audio video so that the patient or subject can have that copy to learn from in the future? Uh, sure. I mean, I think, I think having anything, any record of their session, including uh, video or audio, is going to help that. Yeah. I, I don't think that recommendation is going around the country right now at all. Well, I don't, you know, there's, there's two universes of psychedelic use now, legal and illegal. Uh, I think a lot of the illegal people, of course, are not talking about it publicly because that puts them at legal risk. So we don't really know. Uh, the legal is all in research because that's the only legal place it can be done now in this country. Uh, so that so it's hard to know what's you know what's going on in the field. Uh, yeah, about that. But I know in research, just for safety and everything. Uh, uh, as I understand it, all the sessions are videotaped and recorded, et cetera, and stored in a confidential way and uh, probably made available to the participants, the research participants. Now, you mentioned earlier how after you did this seminal research in the early 80s, uh, MDMA got scheduled, and that was the end of your being able to do it. That was the end of folks being able to do it around the country. Uh, and so MDMA got into the same category at the time as LSD and psilocybin and so on. Yet at the same time, throughout this long period that many of us have endured, you and I and others have endured for, for 50 years, um, the Hefter research has continued to function. How have you been able to do uh, your research and tell us about some of the research that you have been able to do. Yes. Well, Hefter was founded uh, in uh, 1993, so it'd be 30 years this September. And uh, what we do, have, have done, is we receive uh, proposals from researchers, academic researchers at medical schools, uh, for a project they want to do and get funded. We send those proposals to three anonymous reviewers, uh, like is done in, in, in for journals, et cetera, and give that feedback back to the investigator. And they might tweak their proposal until everyone agrees this is good. And then we send them the money to do the study at their university. So all this, all the research is FDA approved, approved the university by the Institutional Review Board for Ethics and Patient Safety. So everything we do is is has been legal because it's research, you know, which is which you have to go through FDA and DEA for that approval uh, to do that research. But that that's all, what that's all our work has, has been that. I was under the impression that in this fifty year period, it's been very difficult for people to get permission from the government to do research. Has that been your experience? Well, up until 1990, that was absolutely the case. From, I think, the early 1970s Controlled Substance Act until uh, an uh, administrative change at FDA, uh, FDA just said no, 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 no to every proposal, proposal to study LSD or psychedelics. Um, 
and MDMA just wasn't really known until until the eighties. But those were turned down too. And then after after we had to stop uh, in the late eighties, the new person in charge of FDA psychedelic research called me up on the phone because he had an application to give one patient what's called a compassionate use investigational new drug exemption, IND exemption. And this was our most successful patient. He was an elderly man who had multiple myeloma, severe back pain from crushed vertebra, and he had stopped functioning. He just couldn't go fishing or have much of a life. And he was his, his visualization for pain control had stopped working. But during his first MDMA session, he did that visualization, and he was pain-free for the first time in years. And so about every six weeks, it would kind of fade and, and he'd have another session and sort of re-boost that thing and it'd be pain-free again. Uh, when MDMA was scheduled, we had to stop. And within several months or so, I think he, he died from his cancer after that. Uh, so I said, well, but before he died, I said, well, we want to keep giving him MDMA because it really helps his pain. And the FDA person said, well, you need more animal research. It's like, you know, he's terminally ill. I mean, it helps him, you know. So that was very disappointing. But but then the new person calls it, you still want to give MDMA to your patient? You know, we're open to that. And so he's already passed. But he said, FDA is now treating psychedelics just like any other drug in terms of the science, you know, the, the, the value of the research, the safety for patients, the useful information. And so FDA totally turned at that time, and they had another hearing about MDMA, and Charles, Charlie Grobe in, in California was going to do just the first FDA-approved human study, and they had a whole meeting. It was televised. It was uh, video recorded, and and they approved. So since then, FDA has said yes, yes, yes to every psychedelic study or MDMA study I've heard of that was decent, and I haven't heard of any of that weren't decent enough to be approved by FDA. So they are. Very helpful. In fact, when um, we're coming into much more recent now, when the USONA Institute took the research with cancer patients we've done and applied to FDA for to do continue that for FDA approval for that use for cancer patients with depression, they FDA suggested why not make it available for anyone with depression, not just cancer patients. So FDA was broadening the access to the research into the potential approval of the drug for all depressed people, not just those with cancer patients. So FDA staff recommended expanding the people who could take it uh, after it was approved. So that was just unheard of. So that, I think, alone gives you a sense of how FDA just made 180 degree, you know, since the uh, since the 1980s uh, on this. And they're very well, supportive now. If that's the case, that the FDA has been supportive why is it taking Rick Doblin and MAPS 37 years to get FDA uh, rescheduled and approved as a, as a medicine? Well, Rick would be the expert on that question because he <laughs> got his PhD on getting MDMA through FDA. Right. Uh, basically, uh, from my experience, and, you know, I've known Rick since the early 80s and uh, we've you know, been in touch about all this and I was present when they first started this PTSD research. Um, one thing is money. Probably the main thing is money. Uh, for Hefter studies, the cost of research 
for each participant averaged out of the whole study is could be from like ten thousand to thirty thousand dollars per person. Uh, MDMA is probably in that same ballpark because uh, their MDMA research requires many hours of therapy, three sessions, and then many hours of, of integration therapy afterwards. So their their staff, the research staff, is spending many more hours for each on each person than has been done in the psilocybin research. So it takes a long time to find people to give you that much money. And more recently, they've, they've raised a lot of money, but uh, getting a drug approved, <laughs> it's just, I don't, I don't, I haven't met anyone who knew what they were getting in, into when they went into it, including Rick, who had a PhD in it. There's always, oh, there's these costs and these costs and these costs. And it just keeps going. And the research takes much longer than anyone expected. A lot of our pivotal research has taken, you know, nine or 10 years from conception to publication. It can be difficult to recruit patients for research for a brand new drug. Then you have to inform of all the risks and potential negative uh, side effects. So there are many reasons uh, for why it takes so long. But uh I think if, you know, if someone had had, you know, $100 million in the 80s, <laughs> it would have happened a lot faster. Well, Rick told me, I, I was with him uh, at Wilbur Hot Springs uh, last week, and he, oh, was my okay. he, yeah, he was my guest there and uh, for an event. And he told me they've raised $130 million, and now they need another $80 million to get through FDA approval. I was staggered by that number, $80 more million to get it through the... To, he's like at the finish line, and he needs eighty more million to cross the line. I That's heard true. something about that, and it's like this is the universe of getting of drug development. You know? I see, I yeah, see, and, and it's like FDA has never done this, researchers have never done this. No one has ever tried to get uh, MDMA or a psychedelic drug approved by FDA before. A drug which requires psychotherapy for it to be effective which is used only, you know, a handful of times in a person's lifetime, if that, as opposed to taking a drug every day. So FDA is, you know, it's just not organized like that. They have no experience with that. No one has experience with that. It's never happened in the history of the world. Uh -huh. So every it's new to everyone and everyone's, you know, have to kind of bit the wheel as they go along. So this that's my personal sort of how I think about this sort of development. Thank you. I, I find that helpful to hear. Yeah. Um, you've talked about uh, that seminal research and about the positive effects of the MDMA in terms of, uh, of uh, reducing perceived emotional threat, which is another way of saying defenses are lowered. And other people have described it as a, uh, by saying it feels like your heart is opening up, which is less, you know, less scientific, of course, but it, but it gets the message across. What are some of the downsides that you discovered? Were the adverse effects, were the negative effects, unwanted, what I call unwanted complications of medicine? By the way, I, I really, I just like shrink when I hear the, the pharmaceutical companies using the word side effects, because I feel like that's, that's, it's sanitized. It's a way of saying, oh, this just happens on the side, you know, but it, we all know those kind of effects don't really happen just on the side. They often happen to the entire person. They're not just a little tickle in the side. 
but in any event, uh, uh, putting aside my my uh, my nomenclature, uh, what about unwanted complications that you that you that you noted uh, you, you can share with us either from that research or from your other research first on MDMA and then I'm going to ask you the same question about other cla- other hallucin more classic hallucinogens. Yeah, well, I think I, I was already thinking unwanted is a better word than side because by definition, you know, in the medical profession, a side effect is something that is not wanted. It's something that's not therapeutic, and and it's uh, it's 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 not happy. It's, it's causes distress or pain or discomfort. Um, so with MDMA, and also need to need to. Um, specify the difference between doing a supervised session under medical care, which we did with MDMA, and people doing it on their own without anyone with a lot of information or training and therapy uh, to screen them against, you know, their own history. This might be harmful to them or medical things or, or just help them through, through the experience. So in our research, uh, the the main side effects, well, unwanted effects. Unwanted uh, complications. If you'll join me, UCM, unwanted complications of medicine. Okay, UCMs. All right. Uh, <laughs> during the session, uh, the most common ones I remember were muscle tension, especially in the jaws, because MGMA releases norepinephrine, dopamine, uh, which can or stimulants, which can cause this sort of thing. Um, Sometimes anxiety when it's coming on very quickly, they're just like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's happening to me. And, that, and so people could, can get anxious from that, though that's rare. Um, those are the main things during UDMA, loss of appetite. Uh, but then afterwards, uh, one to three or four days afterwards, the most common things were feeling uh, very fatigued, low energy. Uh, but not everybody. Um and other just minor physical things, maybe headaches or muscle tension or any kind of just un- discomfort in the body or whatever. Uh, rarely, well, this was an interesting thing. Uh, in people who had a, had a history of spontaneous panic attacks, which is very biological, rapid breathing, rapid pulse, you know, it's a very physical thing, a panic attack. Uh, I think almost all of these people had a recurrence of panic attacks, at least one, maybe in the days after an MDMA session. And uh, in thinking about it, that's probably resulting from the the depletion of the stores of the, all these neurotransmitters that are stored inside the, the, the neuron, the nerve cell, to be released. But MDMA greatly accelerates the release of all these neurotransmitters, so that the body has to make more to, to get them flowing again as normal. So with this serotonin depletion, that and there's experiments, serotonin depletion can lead to panic attacks. It's done experimentally. Uh, so those were the the main unwanted effects from MDMA that that we saw. I particularly appreciate your educating us about the fact that people who have had previous panic attacks should be on the alert, or maybe uh, not be subjects or not be used. And the reason I say that is because I know of a case just within the last few months of a person who went to a therapist and gained some terrific insight, which was tremendously helpful in their relationship and their family. At the same time, 
their anxiety was exacerbated. Now, they had plenty of anxiety going in, and they had suffered a panic attack uh, recently. And so they were very upset about the fact that their anxiety seemed to increase after the uh uh, after the journey with the uh, with the MDMA. So that's mm-hmm. important to know, and I think it's important for us to share around the country if that hasn't been published already. I'm, gonna, I'm making note. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's probably published somewhere, but, you know, it'd be in a scientific paper that... Right. You know, but, <laughs> how but, are you going to find that? You know, right. a regular person. But, they but don't not know. necessarily that the guides around the country who are, you know, taking guide coaching and so on right, are going to know right, about it. Right. Now, another question. Your subjects in that experiment were all what you called relatively healthy and not problem-oriented. Absolutely. We do hear, and I've been hearing this from scientists at um, UC Med, Johns Hopkins, NYU. You know, I've been making the rounds interviewing people that people, and it's in the literature now, and I want your opinion, that people with certain cardiovascular conditions should be either not taking MDMA or should be being very careful. Uh, Tell us your thoughts on those folks and what kind of cardiovascular conditions should we be on the lookout for? Yes. Well, thanks for bringing that. In fact, I thought of one of those while we were talking. So more recently, I was involved in preparing to administer MDMA as part of a research project for MAPS. giving it to prospective MDMA therapists so they can have their own experience. Unfortunately, the pandemic shut that down days before we were going to start with the first person. But I went through all the preparation and all the side effects and everything we had to, you know, the unwanted effects we had to inform people of. And there are the two main cardiovascular things are, well, I guess three, uh, high blood pressure, uh, more rapid pulse, and arrhythmias cardiac arrhythmias. And the last one is tricky uh, because arrhythmias are are a lot more rare than hypertension, uh, high blood pressure, but can kill you. You know, if you have, if your heart stops because of arrhythmia, you die. And in fact, there was a um, a case of an underground elderly man, not that old, 70s, who took MDMA from an underground guide four years ago and he died uh, in the session, and um, that's a long story. But the autopsy, which I saw, said that his, his, his lungs had a lot of fluid consistent with his death being caused by a cardiac arrhythmia because, you know, the heart, the heart stops pumping blood and, and, and it gathers in the lungs or whatever. You know, it's, this is pathology. It's not my field. But that's, that was their conclusion that it, that, that was – probably the cause of death, though they couldn't say for sure because he just died. They couldn't find anything else to explain it. And and for MDMA research and psilocybin uh, research, uh, they screen people for those arrhythmias with e- ECG or EKG. And there's cutoff scores. And I'm not that familiar with MDMA, but psilocybin, definitely there are cutoff scores. And the higher dose of psilocybin, the, the lower your the interval between one heartbeat and, and, and another part of the beat has to be, you know, as a, uh, you know, medically, if, if you have, it's called the PRP, PR interval, if it's too long, that can lead to arrhythmias. 
and in the drugs make it even longer, which makes it more of this to happen. If, if the interval is short enough, then the drug's gonna, not going to make it long enough to cause a problem. So they put a limit on, on who could be in the study uh, to do that. And same with hypertension or other cardiac tests, MAPS even, you know, if there's a thing, we'll have them do a whole cardiac stress test on a treadmill with EKG, et cetera. So those things are watched very carefully by all, all the research and FDA is on, on top of that, et cetera, because the last thing you want is for someone to die when you're trying to help them with the new treatment. I would say that's a pretty severe unwanted complication of medicine. Yes. <laughs> George, you, you, this last point that you're making sounds very important to me because what I hear you saying is it isn't simply a matter of whether a person has had an AFib in the past. It's a matter of whether presently when you do a electrocardiogram on them, the spacing of the intervals is such that could be diagnostic in terms of uh, the possibility of the medicine exacerbating that space and therefore leading to an unwanted complication of great severity. And as I'm listening to that, and by the way, this is the first time, and I've been doing this interviewing people on psychedelics now, probably at least 15 years, I was early on, maybe 20 years into it, and this is the first time someone's brought up this particular point, like people like uh, Tony Bosis and others, Andrew Penn at UC Med, they pointed out that they have parameters for uh, blood pressure and heart rate so that if the person under the, during the, takes the medicine goes out of those parameters, they can immediately apply some medicine to bring the heart rate and the blood pressure down. And they've said they've never had to do, uh, do that with their uh, with their research, which is very important. But I'm thinking now about the people across the country who are going to guides and some professionals who are willing to risk their license. We know that. But certainly the guides aren't risking any license and they're doing psilocybin ther therapy, as you well know, and ayahuasca therapy, which we'll get to today possibly, across the country. But no one, I don't know of anyone who is giving someone an uh, electrocardiogram prior to administering in order to check for the possibility that they would go into a massive, in a persistent AFib rather than a quick erratic one that you can get right out of. Yeah. Well, it's not only atrial fib, which, you know, pe some people survive with and, and they have to take medicine and they have to deal with it and it comes and goes. But there are other arrhythmias that just, you know, your heart stops pumping blood completely. And that's, that's the one that can kill you. Atrial fib is not, you know, atrial fib is my understanding, uh, you know, clots can form from that in the atrium. That's right. And then, and then go to your lung and that can kill you. So, so it's all bad. And, and those arrhythmias are, are, are rare, more common in older people, uh, for sure. And so, um, you know, I just, I don't think about the underground world that much because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, I don't know what goes on. I'm making a point not to know who's doing underground therapy because sure. people ask me to refer them, which I don't do. So, um, but obviously for older people, it would be, well, for everyone be safer, uh, but especially older people are safer to have an EKG that they've done or whatever. And I wouldn't say that having atrial fib or arrhythmia in the past is not a problem. I think everything, everything is important. And in the, in the final 
ultimately, you know, there's all the FDA rules and what you've agreed to with them about who's, who can be in your study and not. But bottom line for these borderline cases is the clinical judgment of the investigator to decide, you know, that's just too dangerous for this person. It's not worth it. This person, uh, I think it is worth it. And interestingly, FDA, you know, they work on a risk-benefit ratio model. So for my study I was going to do with MDMA, the people are not being treated for any problem. This is sort of like therapist training. So FDA is willing to tolerate almost no risk for those people because they're going to experience almost no personal benefit, you know, because they don't have a diagnosis. But for people with the severe PTSD, which is all those subjects in those MAPS trials, they tolerate much higher risk things like, you know, uh, for the therapist, they can have no history of ever having thought about committing suicide in their entire lives, ever, not once. For the PTSD people, I mean, almost all of them have thought about suicide. But that's, you know, that's an acceptable risk because a lot of people with PTSD kill themselves anyway and are have horrible lives and so more risk of tolerated like you know for cancer chemotherapy you can take a drug that could potentially kill you but is more likely to save your life so that's how medicine and FDA work balancing the risk and the benefit risk reward by yeah. the way if I was would have been involved with you back in the early 80s when the, when they said to you that this group has no diagnoses I would have argued that they have two diagnoses. <laughs> and I'll tell you what they are because okay. I've, cre I've created them in the last couple of years. Okay. Two diagnoses. One, H-I-N, hypocrisy-induced neurosis. Hypocrisy-induced neurosis is that when leaders in the country, such as political leaders and theological leaders and other kind of leaders, preach to the public one course of action, and then go out in public and do the exact opposite. That's what I call hypocrisy-induced neurosis, because the people who look up to these people are suffering from cognitive dissonance. When these preachers start screaming against, against prostitution and drugs, and then they're caught with hookers and methamphetamine, or when congressmen are screaming against homosexuals, and then they're caught in, in men's rooms trying to give a blowjob to the guy in the next stall, that creates hypocrisy-induced neurosis in the public. So that's I've what suffered I've suffered from that myself at times. Uh, we all do. That's why I'm saying your subjects had that. The other diagnosis, excuse me. Well, I want to say something here because this is a, a, a funny thing. But one of my favorite sayings about that is for, for a preacher, this is a reference. This is from the Church of the Coincidental Metaphor, which is a satirical church. I don't practice what I preach because I'm not the kind of person I'm preaching to. <laughs> that is very, I, that's great. That is really good, George. That's the inner thought of those hip hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, we think in the same, I don't practice what I preach because I'm not the kind of person I'm preaching to. I love that. Yeah. My, my other diagnose, uh, diagnosis that I think we all suffer from in this country and perhaps the world is post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. I think we have made such a miserable mockery and such a taken such misguided approaches to human sexuality that everybody suffers in some way from some kind of a uncomfortable feeling 
about whatever it is they're doing or not doing sexually. I don't think we can escape from it, including the fact that the major religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all practice uh, that any intercourse, sexual intercourse or sexual behavior really, before marriage is a sin, which means now that we have evidence that 95% of the women in the United States are not virgins when they get married, that means they're all somewhere, no matter how much they think they've left their religion or they don't listen to certain things, in the back of their mind is the little notion, maybe I'm doing something wrong, maybe I'm sinning. And that, that, that is a form of, of, uh, of a stress disorder. So two more, two more diagnoses. I don't think they might be ready for prime time in the DSM yet, but I'm working on it. Okay, well, they're, they're not in the DSM so far. Not so far. <laughs> So let's let's move back to to uh, to psychedelics. That was fun. Okay. Um, right. The Heftet Institute. Oh, you, no, you, you were you're going to ask about side effect adverse effects from psilocybin. You want that's to where I'm that? headed. That, that's exactly okay, where right. I'm headed next. Right, I was okay. going to say the Hefter Institute and its website talks about advancing uh, research in psilocybin. So let's talk about research in psilocybin: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the good is it helps people for months after a session with therapy for the cancer patients with uh, anxiety or depression, uh, uh, smokers, um, uh, people with alcohol problems. Uh, so that's the positive. Those are the ma- the most important findings so far. After you know one or one or you know in terms of alcohol smoking a couple of sessions or so. Um, so that's wonderful. Uh, people also have, well, as Roland Griffiths reported in 06, you know, these spontaneous mystical experiences that are very meaningful to them and among the most meaningful experiences their entire lives. And these are like, you know, people without a diagnosis, you know. So that was, I mean, that was a paradigm shifting study, uh, in my opinion. That was the most important thing in 50 years or so in, oh, at the time or 40 years at the time. Um, so side effects. So psilocybin can also cause the arrhythmias, which I mentioned, uh, during the session, it can cause a little rise in blood pressure and, uh, and headaches occur more often either during or after psilocybin. And then, uh, mentally, of course, with psilocybin, it's, it's much more altering than MDMA. MDMA leaves the person's cognitive abilities basically intact. If they take a lot, they can get a little manic or hyper-enthusiastic or giddy and that sort of thing, euphoric, over, overly euphoric. But people can truly think and remember what they said on MDMA, which is why the therapy can work during the session. With psilocybin, people really can't, it's hard to put sentences together to answer a question and you know turn that into meaning in your mind and then come out with a coherent response in, a, in, a, in sentences, that can be very challenging and almost impossible under high-dose psilocybin. They can say, help, or I'm scared, or I need to go to the bathroom, or raise their hand. But dialogue is truly not, not encouraged during that. It's the headphones and eye shades uh, method. And uh, about a third of the people in the NYU and Hopkins cancer studies, as I recall, about a third of them had anxiety during the session. That was a problem for them. Uh, but by the end of the session, with there's two therapists there, male and female, 
the therapists who are experienced help them process and go through that anxiety and resolve it before the end of the session. So people did not leave those sessions in an anxious state and they didn't have to go to the hospital or anything like that. Uh, so that's just another reason why experienced trained therapists are needed for these sessions and, and before and after. So the people are prepared, they know what to expect. And it's like, oh, this is that anxiety they talked about. Okay, I'm not in any danger. Just notice the anxiety and feel it, you know, um, and, and a general mindfulness approach, noticing the experiences, body sensations, thoughts without believing them in them or getting, you know, deriving meaning from some adverse effect. Uh, or the therapist can reinforce that. Um, and with psilocybin, there's really not not much else that's uh, that's a problem. I mean, there's in, in FDA speak, there's something called serious adverse effects, which are all carefully defined, basically things which can cause death or can lead to death or some lasting permanent injury or damage to the person. And those have never happened in any of the psilocybin research Hefter's done, and probably not in any of it where it's been administered would be my guess. And I think you'd have to ask Rick or, or Michael Bo or Michael Mithofer, but I think I would be surprised if that's happened um, in MDMA research. If so, it'd be very rare. And I know Michael Mithofer told me, you know, three or four years ago that he had never had to prescribe a blood pressure medicine during an MDMA session. And he's a board-certified psychiatrist, internist, and ER physician. So he ought to know, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, when a person needs a drug for high blood pressure. Uh, so that, I think that speaks to the screening and preparation of, of the patients going into all these studies for MDMA and psilocybin. If you screen out people that are going to be at risk, then people are going to have a good experience. Yeah, I, I do think uh, that speaks well for Michael's uh, uh, vetting process uh, because he is so professional. Because I have interviewed people uh, who have taken MDMA uh, on their own and, uh, and they've experienced uh, tachycardia. And in fact, I know some uh, who the word is getting around that for those people, they're uh, taking propranolol uh, along with the MDMA in order to be a service of preventive against the, uh, the tachycardia, and it appears to be working well. Uh, yeah, so just briefly, we when we gave MDMA, we started doing that first for prenolol, but then atenolol, which is, did not cross the blood-brain barrier, so it doesn't attenuate the experience at all. But that was very helpful, not only for tachycardia, but for the jaw tension. The, the atenolol rather than propranolol. Yeah, just because it's propranolol, you know, some people take propranolol over time. They can have low energy. It goes into the brain and the tenolol right. doesn't. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very good to know. What I'm going to tell you about an adverse effect that I personally have had from psychedelics. And that is, I was brought up to be a very honest person and... Very much so. My 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 father was a, an army officer and a dental surgeon in uh, in the civilian life. My mom was a teacher, a, a grammar school teacher, and so I was brought up to be very honest, and it was important to be that way. I sort of had I had an attitude of revolution was okay, but just breaking the law wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
So I'm right. glad you, you could re- you could resonate to that. And so one of the things I realized just in the recent years now is that in my early uses of uh, of psychedelics, I suffered from guilt that I was doing something illegal, and I suffered from fear that if the word got out that I was doing something illegal, I might lose my license. So I had sort of a double whammy. One was my own inner feeling that I was doing something illegal, and, and you know, and what about that? And the other was, but I didn't really have a handle on it uh, at the time. I did have a handle on the fact that about the license issue, of course, but I, I didn't have an that, of course, but I didn't, right. I, and that's why I didn't give it to people uh, mm-hmm. at all, because I, I wasn't one of those who took that kind of risk. But, uh, but the other one just came to me recently. So when I wrote you and you wrote back, I'm not so sure about talking about the cultural adverse effects. I'm sharing with you a cultural adverse effect, which I don't know if others have had this or not, but I, but I certainly did. Um, well, Mike, 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 I just want to comment on that briefly. When we we're giving MDMA. We were doing it completely legally. Yes, and so and so nothing else was happening with any drug like that in the country. Yes, uh, and so when people came to us, they could talk about it. They could tell their friends. We could talk about it. You know, keeping it confidential, and that was it. Was like Camelot, this openness. Like, wow, we don't have to hide in the shadows. We can be open about this. And the, and the last patient I mentioned, the man with the multiple myeloma, he went on national TV. He was interviewed on national TV, evening news on NBC or something at the time uh, when this was newsworthy in the mid-80s. So that was – so I'm not familiar with doing it the other way. You know, this is what I'm familiar with and what yeah. we're able to do, which was a huge part of the mindset and the setting of those people's experiences, you know. And for underground people, I don't know what that would be like because because that situation is totally real, especially for the guide, you know, and for the for the for the participant, the patient too. Yes. Do you want to speak to LSD? I I'm happy to. Yeah, Hefter is Hefter. What we, actually Hefter is now uh, we're funding a study at Johns Hopkins, which would be the first LSD treatment study in about fifty years. And this is Matt Johnson doing this for uh, people with chronic back pain who abuse opioids uh, and so are at risk for opioid overdose and addiction. So that will be the first one uh, in that long, and we're very excited about that. But that's just 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 getting started. So we we have not done LSD supported LSD risk research before that. But in general, do you want to just say something, and you want to, or you want to start with questions, or well. Share what you want to share, and I'll I'll chime in with questions. But I'll say okay. I'll say immediately that if if Matt Johnson is looking for subjects, I'm a chronic back pain patient. I'd love to be in that study. Well, we don't have to t- t- discuss this here, but you won't qualify unless you unless you take more opiates than your doctor prescribes. I don't take any opiates. No, I re- then, no, I, refuse. I don't. Oh. I don't take any. Sorry, no. I'm, I'm, I'm. I've decided I'd rather endure the pain, which is pretty bad, than uh, than than anesthetize my whole body and 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 be in that condition. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to be constipated either. Right. Yeah. Well, this is not my field, but my understanding is that for cancer pain, uh, morphine is fabulous. For other types of chronic pain, opioids 
in the long run are just not effective. They, they, they lose their efficacy and it's just not a road to go down. But of course, millions of people go down that road, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so LSD, well, first of all, LSD, the dose is about a thousandth um, of the dose. Well, not quite a thousand. It's a thousandth of the dose for mescaline. But psilocybin, say the, uh, the usual dose in research is 25 milligrams or 25,000 micrograms. For LSD, the dose is like 100 to 200 micrograms. So it's tiny doses. Um, there are very few drugs of any kind that are uh, that strong. Now, you're just checking here, Richard. You're, oh, there? Okay. Your picture just came back. Yeah, I fixed it. I saw it went off too. Thank okay, you, yeah. George. Uh, yeah, so the, the doses of LSD used are much lower than, than psilocybin. Um, the effects of LSD and psilocybin, you know, it would be hard to put into words the differences. But anyone who has taken both those medicines, the differences are quite obvious. And in general, I would say, and this is, this is more from just reports of individuals, not from research. Um, psilocybin, uh, can be more difficult to put thoughts together than LSD. LSD, often people can just talk and have great ideas and lots of thinking and stuff. Psilocybin, uh, my impression is that the, the cognitive process of thinking and analyzing is just not very functional in the middle of it. I never got around to talking about the, the risks of LSD, psilocybin, psychedelics, MDMA for people with certain mental disorders. And I do want to cover that. Please. Because that um, there's really almost no research data available because people who have had a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, uh, other than drug-induced psychosis, or a manic episode where they're, you know people become euphoric and delusional and, and exercise bad judgment and can get into trouble, they are not allowed, they're not permitted to be in, in psychedelic research. So all we have are just reports of patients, and I've you know I've talked to patients like this, et cetera, uh, who have said it's rare, but it's this has happened. Some people say they're schizophrenic, and their first psychotic experience was on an LSD trip or a mushroom trip. And it's very rare, but it's considered so serious that it, that it's just not allowed at this point. Um, and then there's the fact that people. People have engaged in, again, very, very rare, but suicide and murder have happened while people are under the influence of a psychedelic, uh, you know, mushrooms or LSD. So those are extremely rare uh, risks, but things people need to be aware of, especially people who might have one of those mental illnesses, people with uh, a history of trauma, especially sexual trauma, or maybe combat trauma, they can have... A, a, a reactivation of a memory of that trauma that they may have totally forgotten about and repressed until the psychedelic session. And that can be incredibly disturbing. You can imagine, you know, you're a healthy person, you're in your fifties or whatever. And I worked in a, a, a treatment center for PTSD for about 10 years. And I've seen people like this. And suddenly uh, this person has intrusive memories of a relative sexually abusing them when they were very young children. And anyone can imagine that would just be a horrible experience to have, a memory to have, if you're 
all your senses and your emotions are enhanced and exaggerated with a psychedelic. So those are very serious, but rare because the vast majority of people, as you know, take these medicines, do it responsibly, have good experiences. Uh, they are not addictive, uh, physically addictive. Uh, but still, you know, physicians do no harm and that's what researchers do. So that's just something I really wanted to point out to your audience. You're touching on something that's extremely important, George, because we know that the percentage of women in the United States who have been sexually assaulted at some time in their life uh, is, is almost astronomical. I mean, you read the data on that and it looks like it could be somewhere between one in five women, one in six women uh, have been sexually assaulted in their lives. And so with the uh, renaissance that's going on and people of all walks of life uh, now experiencing uh, psychedelics, uh, there are going to be many of those women who had those sexual traumas uh, who are liable to run into this. And I think you're bringing this out and and both of us continuing to bring this out and, and sharing the word is very important so that if and when uh, these traumas are, uh, are, are reinvigorated, the therapists are prepared to be therapeutic about it and, and, and make the most of it and turn it into something very positive rather than being a re-traumatization. Yes, exactly. And, and, and with the skilled therapists that, you know, skilled therapists who dealt with trauma, they do it all the time. You know, someone's, oh my God, oh my God, I see this and it's in my head and they're just totally freaking out about it. And the therapist can say, okay, feel your body, feel your breath. I'm here, hear my voice. And that just provides other input other than this nightmare that's going on in their mind, you know, uh, at a hundred miles an hour. And so they, and they can have extremely therapeutic, you know, it's, that's, it's, it's an, a painful opportunity to do life-changing therapeutic uh, process when that happens. So it's an opportunity, but it's very terrifying also. George, the shaman in South America are known for taking some of the medicine that they give to the people along with them. And this has led to a relatively high percentage of people who are calling themselves guides or psychedelic coaches um, and possibly professionals as well. I don't really know that. Um, taking psychedelics, uh, I think they say they take small doses um, uh, along with their patients or subjects. What are your opinions on that? I'd be happy to share mine with you, but I'd like to hear yours first, please. Well, my, my understanding of shamanism, classic shamanism, the shaman goes into the, quote, spirit world and uh, retrieves information that's helpful to the patient's healing. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm sure that especially the older, you know, lifelong shamans in South America probably are doing it for that reason, maybe other reasons. Uh, but ayahuasca, you know, I've had ayahuasca. To me, it, it, it also does not really interfere with ability to think and speak very much, you know. So I can imagine a, a shaman, on, especially an experienced one on a moderate or low dose of ayahuasca, being able to function fine, you know, leading a, a session, especially if they had, you know, decades of training and apprenticeship, because uh, that's been going on for since prehistory, you know, down there. 
Uh, now, in terms of, of people in our culture doing that without that kind of history, um, you know, it, it, uh, sometimes during the MDMA, uh, maybe some of the MDMA sessions we did, I, I also took, would take MDMA, and, and sometimes they would request that. But I really, it, it's the first time I think we, we did it that way. And it was, it was interesting, but I didn't find it was any more helpful uh, and, you know, I, you know, I was tired afterwards, et cetera. So it, we just stopped doing that. It just didn't seem worthwhile or useful or anything got any better uh, with that. Um, though, uh, you know, say 50 milligrams of MGMA wouldn't really, I don't think, affect someone's judgment that much if they were well experienced with it. Uh, but psilocybin or LSD, you know, you just can't really have judgment or thinking abilities skills very well at all so that would not be a good idea at all in, in, in my in my opinion yeah my, my own concern is that i see the guide as not only being a guide for the person that they've administered the material to but also being the person who's on board in case there's a hole in the roof or somebody suddenly comes to the door or, the, or, or, or there's a little fire in the other room or a or pipe, you know, the normal things that happen, a pipe breaks, the toilet overflows, you know, to take care of that. And so I would think from that perspective, I, I uh, have a pretty strong sentiment that I'd rather have the guys uh, completely uh, unaltered so they can take care of business if they have to and not also not also be possibly overwhelmed because the toilet's overflowing or a pipe in the kitchen broke or something like that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but we always had two people, myself and my wife, so there's always one person. Yes, you know, but you had extraordinary circumstances because you were yeah. doing research around the country. No, but very few people can afford to have two people but, guiding them. That's right. In fact, that's exactly right. I, in fact, I, I'm thinking that the whole field is going to have to move towards some form of group psychedelic therapy in order for people to be able to afford uh, these experiences. Otherwise, our chemist friends like Nick Cozy and Paul Daly and others are going to have to come up with molecules that are much faster acting. They, you, know, you can have the whole experience uh, perhaps in two or three hours rather than six or seven or eight because there is the expense factor there. And I, I think these you know, the psychedelic experiences are very costly. Well, I agree with you. In fact, uh, Hefter funded one of the first group experiences of the psilocybin session itself at the University of Utah, but they were already doing uh, a group session for uh, cancer patients or hospice patients. So the way, they, the way they're doing it, this is just with maybe five or six participants in a room like a hospital recovery room with curtains around each bed, and there's a therapist for each of the patients but all the patients can hear each other and all the music is played over speakers. So it's a very intimate thing. And uh, after the first one that we, ours was uh, with at Utah was about uh, healthcare providers, ER docs uh, who'd had burnout during the COVID, the, the early parts of the COVID pandemic. And they, after the first session happened to communicate with them and they said it was just, that group session was so inspiring to the researchers and the patients and they were all physicians. So they had that in common. Uh, but I think that is, that's the way of the future because as you say, it's just ridiculously expensive 
uh, and uh, and these people had a good experience in groups. And of course, uh, the Native American church does you know peyote in groups, you know, and for addiction treatment, you know, group treatment AA. I mean, group treatment for addictions is very very common, you know, and and they, they all support each other. So I do feel that's going to be the wave of the future once the drugs are, are approved. And George, more, we're going to learn about that. What, do, what are your hopes and dreams for the future of psychedelic medicine? Well, one, that nobody gets hurt or hardly anybody. <laughs> uh, two, that, uh, well, this is already happening, really. There's really been no opposition to this at all from politically or scientifically from anyone I've heard of. There was one obscure guy who had a blog and he said, oh, they're like pushing their ideology on the subjects because it's not this or that. It's like, but that, that didn't really go anywhere. Um, so I would, I would hope that, um, well, one, that they get approved quickly and safely, that, that people uh, have access to it who can't afford it, and that the therapist access to the training. And I know there's a lot of uh, philanthropists now working in organizations, working to raise money for the patients and for therapist training. So that's a good thing because because uh, there's going to be you know there's millions of people who can benefit from this. If you think of all the people suffering from alcohol addiction alone, I mean tens of millions. You know in this country, and it's just I feel like we've kind of given up on helping alcoholics more than what we're already doing. It's just. But then Michael Bokenshut's study that came out last fall with almost 100 people showed it really helps can help a lot of people with alcoholism. Uh, so that is. Uh, Give me the reference for that st- uh, study, please, George. Yeah, it's it's uh, well, it's the, if you you know PubMed. Yes. Yeah, PubMed. So look up Bogenschutz, B-O-G-E-N-S-C-H-U-T-Z. He's the head of the psychedelic center at NYU. And the study, and just look, Bogan shoots psilocybin. It'll probably be the first one. I've got it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So that's that was a three million dollar study we funded, the biggest study we ever funded, uh, which took about several eight years to do. I think, uh, but it, it worked. And uh, in fact, the the person who founded Apollo Pact, uh, the who's doing this thing in Congress. Uh, he, w- he was severe alcoholic, and he was in that study, one of the first people, and he it's been eight years. He hasn't touched a drink since, and so he's so motivated. He's trying to help Congress get money so other people can uh, can benefit from this. So that's what my hope is. To me, I feel that addiction is going to be the main public health benefit of psilocybin because it is so huge, bigger than depression, bigger than cancer, distress, whatever. I mean, alcoholism is one of the few illnesses that kills innocent people on the highways in my neighborhood, you know, here in Santa Fe. There's a lot of alcohol deaths, wrong way in the freeway, and oh, families are killed in the daytime, you know, from a wrong way drunk driver. It's just, it's, it's just horrible. So that is my, my main wish for that is to reduce, well, human suffering and, and death and, and, you know, having an alcoholic in your parent in your family is just terrible. You know, it's hard to, you can't have a good emotional bond, et cetera. So it, it disrupts families and kills people. That is my main hope, I think, for psychedelic treatment for the future. That's well said. I've had a lot of experience with chemical dependence. I've, I, you may know that I started a uh, Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. Right. You mentioned that. Yes. Yeah. 
And we have, we don't know the actual numbers, but if you say 10% of the country are suffering from, from uh, chemical dependence with alcohol, that's 33 million people. But what we don't often comment on is that for every one of those 33 million people, there's another one, two, three, four, or five who are affected in the family. So it could be well over 100 million people are affected by alcohol without any exaggeration whatsoever. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, and uh, no, I was really influenced even more than I have been. Through. I mean, I've always considered alcohol to be a, a toxic substance, but that Lancet ar- Journal article in 2017, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It was a dramatic study of over 100,000 subjects with, I think, hundreds of scientists involved over many years. And the headline in the study with Lancet was, that, that alcohol is a toxic substance to the human uh, condition. It just simply is. And so, you know, even a small amount, is, is to- it's, we're drinking toxic. And it's so embedded in the culture historically going back hundreds or thousands of years that it's a, it's a real bear. So pleased to hear you uh, talk about that. And I will follow up with, uh, with, with, uh, with Bogenschutz on that and, uh, and give him a platform. I'm going to take a little uh, commercial break here now. And while I do, I'd like you to be thinking about anything you might want to add that you haven't said so far to educate and uh, enlighten our listeners. Okay. Uh, and I'll start that now. Folks, okay. thank you so much for listening uh, to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I want to remind you to go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. All of our wonderful programs are archived and they're open source, so you can get to them without any fee whatsoever and listen in your car or anywhere else that you want. Um, if you push subscribe uh, on the website uh, to the archives, I think that helps us in some way that I'm not sure of. I also want to uh, remind you that my uh, recent book is out, uh, Psychedelic Wisdom, and that followed the first one, Psychedelic Medicine. Psychedelic Wisdom is a book of stories of prominent elders in the United States who have been doing sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics for decades, going back 30, 40, and 50 years. And in the book, Psychedelic Wisdom, they're telling their story. You may remember that the other book, Psychedelic Medicine, is where I interviewed some of the foremost scientists in the United States. Uh, And uh, we will be doing another book on that, hopefully, We'll have George Greer in that second uh, edition of it. We missed him the first time around. Uh, George, back to you. What might you want to add? Yes, what I want to add is talking about the uh, the biological effects of psychedelics therapeutically versus the psychospiritual effects. Because as, as you know, uh, well, in Bogenschutz's paper and in the cancer papers, uh, I think, it's shown that the correlation of the scores on the mystical experience questionnaire correlate with the scores on the improvement in their disorder, whether it's depression or addiction or whatever. So why, in, among the researchers, it's not really possible to give psilocybin without having an experience or take another drug to make you go to sleep that affects your whole brain. So you can't do the perfect experiment on that. But my sense of that, and this comes from one of the first studies Hefter ever uh, funded in Russia for ketamine for uh, opioid uh, addiction. And, and uh, 
that was Dr. Evgeny Kropisky, and he had a, a, a whole thing that's just my point of, uh, you do a graph like, you know, where are you here? Well, on this graph, it's like, I'm an addict. I'm a loser. My, I'm, I'm hopeless. And, and then after the treatment, they're on the other side of the graph. I'm an effective person. I'm competent. I like myself. So their identity changed. And if you know about ketamine, it just pretty much takes you out of your ego and the world for a brief period of time. But for the people who have these mystical experiences, they're experiencing oneness with all things, appreciation, ultimate meaning, and just a whole sense of what, what is reality? What am I? What can I do? What can I not do? And I think it's that change in their belief about who and what they are and what their abilities are that is critical. It allows them to stop being an addict, you know, with a lot of therapy along the way. And so, you know, the Roland study about meaning in life, uh, and you can, I can think of addiction as, as a lack of meaning. You know, it's like uh, Stan Groff would say, well, people get, get addicted to drugs because they're hungry for the real thing, which is this spiritual unity experience. And the drugs are just to sort of get you in that direction, you know, with a stimulant, you can start to feel euphoria, all this stuff. Or, uh, but it's this change in meaning in a, in a, a mind who can think and, and, and do that that I think is so important. And if people, including people who have no diagnosis, can have that experience, uh, I think they would become immune to this, you know, hypocrisy, diagnosis, uh, the sexual one, that's, that's a taller order in this culture. But I think it can help with that and people not just believing whatever they hear from what their friends are hearing. One of the things that I'm going to close with today is to underline something you've said several times, and I think it's really crucial. And that is that psychedelic medicines are one of, if not the only, class of medicines that are to be taken along with psychotherapy. And, yeah. and, I th and that I think that's really important for the public to know because we're all brought up on taking medicines, just taking the medicine. The doctor prescribes it. We go to the drugstore. We pick up our bottle. It says take three of these uh, every six hours. Take one, three a day. We go home and do it with almost everything, if not everything else. And here we have a whole new class of medicines that you pointed out to us again and again which is this, with this class of medicine, the public caveat emptor needs to, to know that this is a medicine that you take with psychotherapy if you really want the full effect. And yeah, so, thank you. That's great. Thank you so much for being with me today, George. It's been really okay. a pleasure interviewing you. And, and thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Remember, 9 o'clock Tuesday mornings, we broadcast every week, and you can listen to the rest of all of our programs on the archive. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness.